Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. It is I, one of your co-hosts, Jessica, and as always, I am joined by my beautiful friend, Tara. Ah, thank you. Hello, Spooksters. And today, you are getting a bonus kind of little, it's like, it's part two. It's part two of the Zodiac. Yes. We have turned this into a mini series. Pretty much. <laughs> I'm really excited about what's happening. So without further ado, here's part two. That was so cute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> We are going to jump to the next attack. And this happened on September 27th, 1969 at Lake Berryessa. So again, it would be another couple this time. Brian Hartnell, who is 20, and Cecilia Shepard, who is 22. They had went out to have a picnic, relax, spend some time together. Uh, They mentioned they had been reading out there, you know, just enjoying an afternoon. Brian was laying towards the lake and Cecilia was like on her stomach facing the opposite way. When they see the Zodiac. Also, sidebar, if you've seen the movie, you know exactly which attack I'm talking about right now. And it's actually said by Brian, because he survives, that this was eerily correct and very spot on what he remembers experiencing and seeing. And he's like, this is just, it was so much. He had to look away. And it wasn't like he even knew it was going to happen like that accurate because he didn't consult with them. He wasn't like, you know, like an expert, whatever. He did not participate in that. So it just kind of, you know, obviously caught him off guard. So that was a question I had when I was watching the movie was like how accurate their depictions were. And apparently they were spot on. So Cecilia, basically, Cecilia says to Brian that she sees a man and she's like, he's looking at us and like it was bothering her and things like that. He doesn't turn around and look or anything because he's just relaxing and whatnot. And he's like, you know, don't worry about it. It's fine. And he's like, and where I thought she was talking about was several more yards away. And he's like, you know, stop worrying, da 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 da. Then she says she can't see him anymore, that he went behind a tree. And he was like, the dude's probably taking a leak. Dude's probably peeing. Like, don't worry about it. It's fine. Well, it wasn't fine. He uh, eventually got extremely close and then it'd be, you know, too late for them to really do much. So it's noted that the Zodiac pulls his hood to cover his face and approaches them with a gun. He ends up telling them that he had escaped from a prison in Deer Lodge, Montana by killing a guard and then stole a car. Brian says that he didn't necessarily believe or get the vibe that this guy was a killer. He kind of thought this was bullshit. And the Zodiac had said to them that he just wanted their money and the car keys and that if they cooperated, you know, nobody would get hurt, that kind of thing. 
Brian tries to like reason with him or kind of build rapport and talk with him and be like, if you need help, I can help you. You know, I don't have much money on me. I'll write you a check type of thing. And no spoiler there. That's not what Zodiac wanted. So then he pulls out this white clothesline rope as Brian describes it. So like if you have a clothesline or ever had one as a kid, that kind of stuff. And he gives it to Cecilia and tells her to tie Brian up. And as she's doing this, Brian says he was he told Cecilia that he, you know, they were close enough. He could rush him and maybe get the gun. But Cecilia was like, no, that's not a good idea. Let's just cooperate. That kind of thing. So Brian doesn't do anything. And during their little exchange, like Zodiac kind of backs up. I don't know if he maybe heard him or if he realized like, oh, shit, I should put some space between us because I'm getting this person kind of very calculated. But either way, there's space between them. So that opportunity to go get grab the gun's gone. And at this point, after he's tied, he goes and ties Cecilia up. He ties her wrists and then he also begins to tie her feet. And Brian tries to like protest with them and be like, look, we're cooperating. You know, why are you going to do this? He said that he brought up about it being cold and all of that. But really, he's like, I was just it's not really what my concern was. But, you know, it just came out of his mouth. And so long story short, they both get their feet tied up. So their wrists and feet and they're on their stomachs. And then Brian decides to ask if the gun he has was actually loaded because he knows that a lot of robbers don't actually load their weapons because if they do get caught and they have an empty weapon versus a loaded one, they could get lesser charges. Well, he learns that it was loaded because Zodiac shows him like the magazine clip thing. Right after this, that's when he starts to attack them, but he doesn't shoot them. He stabs them. Brian is stabbed six times, and then he goes over to Cecilia and starts stabbing her multiple, multiple times. And Brian said that he knew that he had to, like, stop breathing and play dead or else the dude would come right back to him and make sure he did die. So he played dead. He didn't move. He didn't do nothing. And it worked. And Zodiac ended up leaving. They were both conscious and everything at this point. He said he used his teeth to loosen up Cecilia's bindings on her hand so she could untie him. But at first, when they finally got it, her bindings were so tight that her hands had went numb and so she couldn't move them at first. So they were kind of just like sitting ducks for a bit. Eventually, Brian did get out of his bindings as well. And he tries to call out for help because, you know, there's few people that pass by and things like that. So he doesn't have any luck originally. But then there's this fisherman named Ronald Fong and the guy does hear him. And he thinks it's the same thing as these other people, like, because the dude doesn't stop. He keeps going or loops or whatever it is. And in reality, he was actually going so he could notify the park rangers. So he was doing, like, the smart thing, actually getting someone who could help. Sadly, like I kind of mentioned, Cecilia would end up dying from this attack, but she wouldn't die until two days later. And that was, of course, due to all of the injuries and things that she had. And then to kind of sidebar, but not the same day in this same kind of similar area, there was a report. There was these this group of girls. There's three of them. They said that they saw a white male pull up right behind their car. They were at Smittle Creek Trailhead slash Smittle Creek Day Use area at 3.30 that day. They were like sunbathing, hanging out, you know, that kind of thing. And they say that when he pulled up like super close behind their car, he sat in his car for about like 30 minutes and just did nothing. Didn't move, just sat there like creep. And then after that, he got out of the car. And at that point, he was 
super close to them. He was like 40 to 50 feet away and just like watching them. And then anytime any of them would try to like make eye contact and stuff with him, he would like, you know, look away like, oh, they're paying attention to my face kind of thing. But they ended up describing him kind of similar to how he's been described before. They said that this was a 28 to 40 year old male. He was approximately 200 to 225 pounds, six foot tall, black hair, round eyes, good looking, stocky slash muscly built. He was wearing dark pants and a dark pullover shirt. And they said nothing happened. He's just standing around like a fucking creep. But about half an hour to 45 minutes later, he just left. And then they noticed something white on him. It was either some of the girls said that it looked like it, his like a white shirt was hanging out or something. And then the others were like, maybe it was a belt, that kind of thing. But it was just interesting because when Brian describes him, he guesstimates that he was five, eight to six foot. He does describe him as like a little bit heavier set. So stocky in another person's brain. Those could be semi parallel because then he guesstimated his weight to about the same, about 225 to 250 pounds. So I just found that interesting because I read that on one website. So I don't know what made him decide to not attack those girls. Maybe he was intimidated by there being three instead of two like he had previously done. I don't know. I mean, at this point in time, he's attacked couples. Yeah. His victimology is a man and a woman. Mm -hmm. He obviously has some sort of like hatred towards women because he essentially annihilates them versus he's okay with a man living in a sense. Right. Mm hmm. So I just thought that was interesting because he was watching them and maybe like this is always speculation, but maybe he was mulling it over and then just decided, nope, let's move on. And then that's when he went on to Brian and Cecilia. Well, then you can factor in the fact that if you look at like MOs of killers and I mean, basically they break them down into like different categories and like sexual sadists are big things and Often sexual sadists who kill, kill with knives because to be the most direct, it is like the knife is symbolism for a penis. And most of the time they're impotent, so they cannot perform that. So that could be why stabbing is a thing. But up until this point, he hasn't used a knife, which it would make sense that he would change up his M.O., if he had just been standing around these women and maybe want to be sexually aroused but cannot be. Yeah. No, I thought that was just like an interesting little sidebar to add in, you know? Definitely. So like Tara said, a fisherman notified the local park rangers. The park rangers like radio it in to local dispatch and they immediately send out a detective from the Napa Sheriff's Department and his name was Ken Norlow. And then another gentleman was also dispatched. It was a sergeant with the Sheriff's Department and his name is David Collins. And David Collins wins the biggest, dumbest award ever. We'll talk about that in a minute. So basically, my husband's family and I go to Berryessa basically every year. It's like where we take out the boat. And every time we're out there, his brother Chris and I are like, where did the Zodiac kill people? That's <laughs> literally what we were like. Have we found it? I guess maybe I should just like Google it. I hope it's like marked. Probably is. Be like, go this way. <laughs> just put it in ways. Somebody's done it. <laughs> There's no self-service out there. Boo. Yeah, it's literally, it's like a man-made reservoir. So, like, one of the things they talk about in the documentary is, like, how this, like, literally has a bunch of, like, coves and it it's, like, irregular. Typically, it's like, oh, there's these nice little coves that you can go in. But this one has, like, things that, like, jot out in the middle of nowhere. And that's kind of, like, where they were. So, like Tara mentioned, they were on, like, this little peninsula, which when it 
is winter is more of an island, but like Berryessa in the summer months drops a lot. And so they would have had access to this area because of that. Well, like there would be like a little cove and then there was another like little, I don't know what to call it, peninsula, I guess, right there. That's where he was thinking the Zodiac guy was or this guy was that Cecilia is talking about. Because like Tara mentioned in his mind, he's going over like, oh, well, it's no, I don't know what tone of voice she was using. If she's like, there's a man over there, like curious. But it, if it was me, I'd have been like, uh, there's a dude like right the fuck there. Mm-hmm. So we'll go back to the, the detectives and whatnot that are on their way out. It's also good to note that Napa has a low crime rate. It still has a low crime rate because of like where it's situated. At this particular time, they could go years between having homicides. However, in 1969, they have five to six and then add this one in, which had me thinking, like, could these all be connected somehow? Like, were there any unsolved? Could these be linked? other victims that are linked? So it was, like I mentioned, Ken Norlo was in one car going out and then David Collins and his partner Ray Land were on their way out from Napa. And the roads out there are really windy. So it's basically like, I don't want to say mountainous, I say hillish. So it's like the road cuts in and it's very windy like the lake. So because of that, typically it could take up to like an hour to drive out there. These guys drove it in 30 minutes. So they were going as fast as they could, as safely as they could. It's also, I want to note, like, just if you watch the documentary, Brian is so together from like the moment they start interviewing him to like now he looks like his life just went on just fine like whereas michael looked like his whole life ended that day and even like when he's still in the hospital his state of mind is like he's very articulate so i was like okay i don't know if i would be talking that articulate if i had just been stabbed six times in the abdomen it's fine yeah true but like i'm sure in his brain too he was like i need to try to focus on this because any little detail i can give may help in catching him very true and like tara mentioned earlier what the movie is like is what brian says happened at this point in time like if we go back before the rangers get there brian actually crawled slash stumbled towards the road where his car was and as he (laughs) this is This has to be the worst fucking moment of his life, even though he's just been stabbed. He gets up there and this vehicle pulls up and this guy gets out with a flashlight and he's in this big bulky jacket, which I want to talk about in a second of a theory, which I know normally I was going to say for theories, but needs to be said in this. This guy with a big bulky jacket gets out and Brian automatically thinks, well, he's come back to finish me. And then the guy turns and the headlight catches it and he sees that there's like an insignia on his shoulder that he's like, oh my God. Basically, the police arrive about an hour after the crime has happened, which was about 6.30. So this is 7. So it's still kind of light out. In September, it's not dark. Right. They also think that at this point in time that because we'll find out in a minute that Zodiac, he can be placed in Napa shortly after the killings. He must have driven right past the police, which had to be like an ultimate because I'm sure they were like sirens on. And he must have driven past them like, I did that. Because a little later that night, rookie officer David Slatt, he worked with the Napa County Sheriff's Department. And what they did is they would have their rookie cops cover dispatch on their lunch breaks. So he happened to be on his lunch, or the dispatcher happened to be on her lunch break, and he was covering for her. I'm not assuming that all dispatchers are women. He just said her. So David took the call, and he heard, I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. 
They are two miles north of park headquarters. David asked, where are, where are you now? And he's like, I'm the one who did it. And then dropped the phone and fucking walked off into the night. So the police immediately broadcast that the phone was left on and he intelligently, this officer, left, like didn't hang up the phone, just left it going. And they start this whole like actual like process where like they're getting someone to like do a trace, but we're talking 1969. So that's more of like, it's a lot of work. It's not like today, like when you're watching the shows and the person types it in and it's like two seconds later, it's traced. We're talking like it probably would take hours. Well, luckily for them, a reporter was listening to his police scanner and he jumped in his car and he started driving around Napa until he found at the gas station the phone off the hook where he basically walked up and started shouting, can you hear me? Can you hear me? And Officer David yelled back, yes. So they found, he's like, I found the location. So good job, reporters. Damn. Well, while all this nonsense is happening in Napa, Detective David Collins interviews Cecilia while they're waiting for the ambulance to get there. She told him that she first saw him when he was about 200 or so yards away. And this was like earlier in the afternoon. And as the afternoon went on, he got closer to the couple. Cecilia told Brian when the man was about 75 to 80 feet away. So like really fucking close. Like there's a dude there. And then she told him that he ducked behind a tree. Then something Tara said earlier, which by the way, was never fucking noted in any goddamn report ever. But we find out in this documentary that Cecilia tells Detective David Collins that he stepped out from behind the tree and was pulling on a mask. Also, like, if she saw him from, like, 80 feet away, like, you might not have details of his face, but you saw his face. Mm-hmm. You can give something. Mm-hmm. Detective Collins thought this was weird and was like a hood. And then there's this whole thought of like, why would he wear a hood if he's going to kill them? Because typically the only reason you wear like a mask or a hood is if you're going to leave someone alive. So we don't even know if the killing was his intention, but obviously it was because he like called in and said he wanted to report a double murder. How pissed do you think he was when he found out that Brian lived? Oh, I'm sure he was mega pissed. Fucking douche. (laughs) Right? So Cecilia describes her killer as a white male with brown hair, wearing dark glasses, so she couldn't get an eye color. His hair was long enough that when he pulled the mask on, it, like, stuck out the top of the eye slits. His weight, they figured out, like, she couldn't say how tall he was. So basically, uh, Detective Collins was like, well, I'm 5'10", and he goes and stands where, like, he came closer. And she was like, he's about an inch or so taller than you. So now they have a height range of like 5'11 to 6 feet tall. And then she didn't know how much he weighed. So he was like, well, I'm 170 pounds. And she's like, he's anywhere from like 20 to 30 pounds heavier than you. So that would put him in the 190 to 200 range. And that he was wearing dark clothes. And like, oh my fucking God, people. David Collins never put it in his report that Cecilia saw the face of her attacker. And when he was asked about it, and I listened to this several times to write it down, he said, I quote, you know, at the time, I didn't think it was important. (laughs) 
He fucking chuckled. Mm-hmm. That made me want to throw a punch him so motherfucking bad. Jesus. I was so on board with him because I was like, oh, he has the wherewithal. Like, he knows she's in pain. Like, he did this nice thing. Like, she said she was cold. So he put it, like, he got someone to get his jacket to put around her. Like, he was, like, doing this. And then, motherfucker, you don't put the most important goddamn thing. Like, I'm sorry. At what point in trying and to try to catch a murderer do you not fucking say like here's a description of this dude's face right what the fuck were you thinking right well the basically at this point in time more detectives like everyone's there and they're trying to process the crime scene after they've been taken to the ambulance however what ends up happening is that to quote unquote preserve the evidence the park rangers actually collected up everything and had it all bundled up in the blanket and the detectives were like are you fucking kidding me No, they couldn't go look at the crime scene and see like the patterns or anything like that and how he moved like, you know, so that kind of was like a huge thing. And granted, they do say that they assume that the park rangers were trying to help, Mm -hmm. but like not knowing they actually hindered them a lot. So they couldn't process the crime scene correctly. However, our buddy David Collins does find a shoe print and he realizes that there's a set of footprints that lead down to where the couple was and then back up to the road that didn't match either Brian or Cecilia's. And they get an imprint. It's basically a military-esque shoe. They actually got it down to like they knew his shoe size and what exact boot it was. And it's basically a shoe known as a wing walker. And it has a static-free sole. And basically it's meant for people in the like Navy and Airport Airport, Navy and Air Force to walk on like the wings of the planes and stuff on the carriers or out on the carrier decks and stuff so that they don't get static electricity because apparently that could kill you. At this point in time, they follow it up and they find the couple's car and they could tell that behind the couple's car there had been a car parked and the front two tires didn't match like on that car, which means that this car was not very well taken care of. It probably just buying tires as they could. Mm. But more importantly, on Brian's car, on the door, it had written in like a permanent marker. So like pre-Sharpie days, I guess, with like a fine tip marker. It had the Zodiac symbol with the, I guess it's like a scope. I didn't even realize that, you know, the cross hairs and the circle around it. Mm -hmm. And then it said Vallejo and then it said 12-20-68 and then 7 4 Dash 69. And then it said sept, like September, but like they abbreviated 27th dash 630 by knife, which you have to look at this as like, this is a really risky move for anyone to do because of the fact that that took some time. Like you have someone out there like riding on a car and this is drawing attention. He's covered in blood. He's potentially have like the weapon on him and everything like that. I think the Zodiac is very calculated Mm -hmm. and probably knows that area well enough to know that people weren't coming down it. It's after summer vacation. I mean, my family goes out in September because there's a lot less people on the lake. And we go out for that reason because, you know, my brother-in-law and my husband wakeboard, my father-in-law skis. And so it's nice to be, you know, to be out there when there's less people because they can go on longer runs. They don't have to like... You know, a lot of times you end up having to like turn really quickly and things happen. So, yeah, we we typically go out later in the season. Like we'll go up all the way until like October because it stays warm in Northern Mm -hmm. California. The water is like so 
so fucking cold. <laughs> but we'll still go. So, I mean, obviously this person knew that people go out there, but it's not as packed as in the summer months where like when you go in the summer, there's just people everywhere. Right. Yeah. I did want to mention one other thing is that by the time that the investigative detectives got out to the phone booth, I don't know why this is written here instead of back with the phone booth stuff, (laughs) that some of the fingerprints on there were so fresh that they had to artificially set them. Wow. So like we're talking, this wasn't very long. Like they were responding very quickly, but whoever this was, like there's a reason why he didn't just hang up and leave. He wanted them to find it. He wanted this big dramatic chase for him. Mm-hmm. He enjoyed the theatrics, obviously. Oh, he did. So we're going to jump to the next murder, and this would be in San Francisco on October 11th of 1969. So the victim of this attack was Paul Stein. He was 29 years old, and he was a cab driver. It's believed that he picked up the Zodiac between 9.35 and 9.45 p.m. in downtown San Francisco near the intersection of Mason and Geary Street. The murder would actually take place on the intersection of Washington and Cherry. Paul was shot in the head. His wallet and keys were taken. And a big portion of his shirt, which this will come into play in a little bit, was carefully cut off of him and just gone. And it was also noted that there was bloody fingerprints on the vehicle. Won't jump too ahead on that part. But it's noted that there was three witnesses that watched the Zodiac, possibly, from approximately 60 feet away as he wiped down the cab with the cloth after killing Paul. They called the police and their description was kind of similar to what we've been hearing. He was, according to them, 25 to 30 years old, 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 9, had a stocky build, had reddish brown hair, worn in a crew cut, had heavy rimmed glasses and dark clothing. And when they said they last saw him, he was just kind of like casually walking, going north on Cherry Street. So not running, not bringing attention to him, just kind of like, whatever. Now, something that happened, the police dispatcher was describing the suspect as being an African-American male. So, because of this, the patrol officers, Donald Folk and Eric Zelms, they said they remember seeing a white man walking east on Jackson Street, but didn't stop or question him because they thought they were looking for an African-American male. They did get a good look at him while they did see him, though. And then when the correct description of the Zodiac or the suspect of this, because, you know, right away they're not going to know it's Zodiac, the officers are like, oh, my God, we probably just fucking passed this dude like just a few minutes ago. And they searched the area where they had seen him, but no luck, of course, because Zodiac's a fucking slippery snake. When they talked, these two patrolmen talked about The person they saw, they said very similar things. They were saying he was white. He was 30 to 45 years old, and they estimated he was 5'10", and then around 180 to 200 pounds. They described him as barrel-chested, so I guess that means just, like, broad. I don't, I've never, I don't know what that really means. (laughs) I think it's, like, wide, but also, like, some girth. Okay. They said he had light-colored hair that was in a crew cut and was wearing glasses. They noted that he didn't appear to be carrying anything, and also in their report, it was like no conversation took place because obviously they didn't stop the dude. 
So I want to introduce the people who get here to the scene are patrol officers. The first one is Armand, and I'm going to say his last name wrong, Pelsetti? Pelisetti. And he gets to the scene first because he was like really close to the area. He and his partner, Frank Petta. And then Tara mentioned Donald Fuke and Eric Zelms. They were over like by the Presidio area. They had just passed Washington when they got the call. But like Tara said, they see this guy walking down the street and Donald, who out of both he and Eric are the only one alive when he's being interviewed, he says that they slowed down to kind of get a look and then they saw he was a white male. So they just barreled through. Armand was like really quick on it though. Like as soon as he got, like he talked to the witnesses and they said that the guy was white, he immediately radioed that there was something wrong. So Donald and Eric hadn't even gotten to the crime scene yet. And they turned around and they went like basically the way he was because Armand said that he followed the guy up the street, up Cherry and then went down Jackson and then Maple and was thinking like, Because Presidio is like a park area. And so they were thinking like, oh, he would go in there, which is exactly what Donald and and Eric thought. So Donald said he saw a male who was white in his like 35 to 45. He was wearing a derby three-fourth length waist coat with elastic waist and cuffs. And I looked it up and my dad had a coat very similar to that. And I was like, oh, dad. (laughs) And then I was like, I'm pretty sure I bought that for him. So like, okay. (laughs) It was so that he had like a shirt that had like a flattened down collar. Tara mentioned he had a crew cut. He was wearing rust colored pleated pants and engineering type boots. So there's another connection is that this guy is wearing boots, like which was mentioned in other killings as well. And that they were like a low cut and they were tan. Mm-hmm. Donald says that they saw him for about 10 to 20 seconds. And for me, I'm like, that's a lot to like memorize about a person in 10 to 20 seconds because that's not a lot of time. But then again, I think they're trained to like be more observant than like you and I. Yes. David Tochi is the actual detective that was running this case in San Francisco. If you watch the movie with Jake Gyllenhaal, he's the character played by Mark Ruffalo. Mm-hmm. Which can we just say that that movie has so many attractive men in it. <laughs> and all of them are like in Avenger movies. <laughs> right. Isn't that weird? <laughs> it's like RDJ, Mark Ruffalo, Jake Gyllenhaal, though Jake Gyllenhaal is the bad guy. But like, it's still what it is. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, I see you. So here's the thing. Armand and Donald, they have a disagreement in what happened. So there has been many reports. And I believe if I'm remembering this right, in the Zodiac movie, the officers stop the guy, but then like move on. Because in Robert Graysmith's book, they say that they stop a guy to ask him if he's seen what's going on. Also, in a later Zodiac letter, he says that the cops stop him to ask if he's seen anything going on. Donald swears up and down that he did not stop this guy. Armand says that he came in and said, this is what happened. And I stopped this guy and I stopped the Zodiac, which is interesting because in, like I said, Robert Graysmith's book, Zodiac Unmasked, Donald supposedly says to David Tushy, we could have died tonight. And he was supposed to be like overly emotional. And Donald is like that fucking didn't happen. Well, he didn't say fucking. He said that didn't happen. So there's kind of like these like weird, I don't know, inaccuracies. 
But the fact that it's like a point of contention between these two officers is huge. The fact that Armand's like, he didn't see the Zodiac. He's crazy. He doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about. And Donald's like, I'm pretty sure the Zodiac made eye contact with us before he turned his head. And like the thing that he said, I think is really interesting is that the Zodiac has always tried to do like countermeasures as well. So like driving off slowly, calling the police from a location not near the killing, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It said that when Donald and Eric were passing him in the car, they see the guy and he actually turns and walks up like to a building like to go up the steps to like go in, but they never see him get to the top of it and they never see him go into the building. And it's interesting because in that documentary we watched, that guy knows, he knows the address that that guy walked into or turned into. But Donald didn't assume that he, be- like, that he lived in the area because it was like an upper, people had money. I mean, this is the 60s in San Francisco in this particular area. So like, if you're a white male out walking at night, you're probably safe. So that's another reason, which is probably why the dispatcher, I think that it was intentional because it's really hard for me to believe. It's like one thing to be like, oh, it was like a white male 30s to 40s when really they meant like 20s to 30s. But to say like a different race entirely, it's like, "Mm, I call bullshit, bitch. Yeah. And then after this event from October 13th, through December, we have some more letters come in. This first one in October, basically Zodiac's kind of like picking at the police and talking shit and just being like, well, you sucked at trying to catch me. So da 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 da. And then there's also this one really sticks out a lot when you like hear about these letters. He was threatening to shoot children on a school bus, which I'm like, oh, dear God, please no. Right. It's going to be in a theory later, so in the next episode, so for sure. Yes, so we'll definitely touch on that more. But I told you to stick in your back pocket about Paul's shirt being cut. Well, he actually included a piece of that shirt in this letter to be like, see, I did it, motherfuckers. Well, in November and December, there's three more letters. In the first one that comes in November, it has some more of Paul's shirt. There's some like greeting cards and there's another cipher and it's quoted Des July, August, September, October equals seven. And they think that's basically referencing some more victims that they don't know about at this time. And then on the one postmarked November 9th, this is what Jessica was talking about, how Zodiac is talking about like how the police stopped him near the crime scene, but let him go. So he's being like, hey, hey, like I'm so like slithery, I can get out of anything kind of thing. And he also includes a, a bomb recipe and a diagram in this letter. Yeah, he's crazy. Yeah. And then this last one, which I won't touch on very much because I'm going to give it to Jessica for this little part. There was a letter sent to an attorney named Melvin Belly. I'm probably saying that wrong. Sorry. Postmarked December 20th of 69. And he says, quote, please help me. I cannot remain in control for much longer. And he's referring to killing more people. Yes. And so in this letter, basically, he says that if he goes on to this like certain TV like news show and that was in the Bay, that the Zodiac would call in and talk to him. And so I guess this happened a couple of times, like one time he tried and couldn't get through and then he came back on another time and the Zodiac got through and the quote unquote Zodiac 
got through and basically arranged to meet at like the storefront. And then they had all the cops there and then nobody fucking showed up to turn themselves in. Of course, because people are idiots if they think the Zodiac is going to like give themselves up that way. Right. It's also stated that during this time, a man walked into Melvin's office and was like, I'm the fucking Zodiac and blah, blah, blah. And we're going to talk about that next time because that's more theories. Yes. Obviously, the Zodiac didn't follow through on that shit. Mm -hmm. So those are, like I said in the beginning, kind of the main attacks and murders you hear about a lot in regards to the Zodiac. Those are all the ones I had previously been familiar with and also kind of some of these I'm going to talk about now. So these ones are all possible attacks or murders linked to Zodiac. Most of them, it's kind of like they think they're pretty sure it was him. This first one, they're convinced, was a part of it. And this was one I kind of hinted at earlier. So we're going to actually jump back in time before this timeline that we just went over started. We're going to go to June 3rd of 1963. And this is in kind of similar area. This was in Lompoc, California, which they also refer to near Santa Barbara, things like that, because it's small town. I don't know if it still is a small town, but it was a small town. So on June 3rd, Robert Domingos and Linda Edwards decided that for their senior skip day, which was this day, they were going to spend the day at the beach at Gavoida Beach is what I'm going to say. I'm sorry. I'm probably saying it wrong. The weird thing about this one is they kind of tried to piece stuff together. So it said that like nobody knows precise like time or like the chain of events and things like that. But they do know that at some point a man confronted the two of them and he was armed with a 22 caliber weapon or possibly a rifle. They believed that the man had pre-cut lengths of rope and then kind of similar to the one with Cecilia and Brian had the female tie up the male. After that, they think the male attacker tied up Linda's hands. But somehow, Robert, maybe she just did it really loosely so he could do this, or she was just scared so she couldn't do it super tight. Robert got out of it and fought back so the couple could run away. But that didn't end up successful because Robert and Linda were both shot in the back, and they said they both just, you know, they dropped to the ground upon being shot. The attacker is believed to have reloaded his weapon, and he shot a fuck ton more. Robert was shot 11 times, and Linda was shot 8 times. The attacker drug their bodies to, like, this makeshift kind of shack thing and tried to conceal them in there. He then picked up, like, all their stuff they had, you know, because they were, like, like a little picnic area strewn about. He picked up all their stuff and then he put them in the shack, too, so that way they weren't there because maybe he thought, like, if they don't see their stuff when they come look for them, you know, that kind of thing. And I guess he tried to set a blanket on fire to throw in the shack to set everything on fire to get rid of all the evidence and burn the bodies but that didn't really work like the fire didn't stay lit and of course this attacker left the scene now in 1970 detective bill baker he was assigned to this cold case and he looked at all the evidence and he reached out to different like jurisdictions to try to see if there was any kind of similar cases out there And this is when he would be contacted by the San Francisco Police Department, their inspector, William Armstrong, who was assigned to Zodiac with David Toshi. And Armstrong told Baker that he thought that the Zodiac might have killed them. And according to Bill Baker, 
he said that Armstrong basically was just like any time that he thinks about all of these murders and all of Zodiac's crimes, he's like, we 100 percent need to include this in like the roundup in the timeline and everything. So that was one that I had no fucking clue about. I didn't either. I was so shocked. I was like, what? I don't know this. Mm-hmm. I know. I just kind of stumbled across it when I was grabbing these other ones, which these ones are more well-known. And I don't remember if both of them are in the movie, but the second one I'm going to talk about is definitely in the movie. So there was another case that happened in Riverside, California. This murder occurred on October 30th of 66. The victim was Sherry Josephine Bates. That night, Sherry had left a note for her dad saying she was going to go to the library and go study for a bit and she'd be back. But sadly, she would never be seen alive again. Her car would be found in the library parking lot and her body would later be found in between two houses that were right there in the neighborhood. She had been stabbed multiple times and her throat was also slashed. At the scene where they found her, they also found a few things. They found a man's Timex watch, a military boot print, basically the same one that you talked about a little bit ago. And they also, which I'm curious what happened with these hairs, probably nothing, but they found some hairs in her hand that was like stuck to the dry blood on her hand. Damn. Yeah, I guess nothing happened with that. But when they did her autopsy, they did rule that there was no evidence of sexual assault. So how Zodiac also came into play with this, because this is, you know, a singular person, not a couple. So you're like, okay, how's that linked? Apparently, in one of Zodiac's notes, he had said, quote, Miss Bates was stupid. She went to the slaughter like a lamb. And I am not sick. I am insane. Okay. And then apparently in 67, one of the newspapers and also the police department and her dad received identical handwritten letters, which read, Bates had to die. There will be more. And it was signed with a symbol that resembled the letter Z. Yes. So they're like Zodiac Killer. I mean, most of the time, like, this is what I get for, like, always watching crime documentaries and shit. (laughs) Like, you have an escalation of things. Like, people start... And their first crime is typically sloppier. It's typically not as well thought through. But I mean, this particular one is because like she was killed in this like alleyway, like which now today does not stand. It's like actually part of the school. Mm -hmm. She like was killed in this dirt gravelly alleyway between two vacant homes. So this person had a working knowledge of the actual area they were involved with. Mm hmm. Now, this next one, this is in the movie for sure, because I remember. So we're going to go over to Modesto now. And more specifically, this takes place on Highway 132, and that's near Patterson, California. So 22-year-old Kathleen Johns had her baby with her. It was around 11.15 p.m. when they were traveling. She was going to see a sick relative or her sick mother or something like that. And basically, she pulled over on the highway or on the side of the road because a man in a different car had gestured or whatever telling her that something's wrong with her car. Basically that her wheel was wobbling, quote, quote. And of course, what does this guy do? He offers to be a good Samaritan and help fix the problem. But of course, as predictable, he made it worse. So when she got back onto the highway, the wheel just like totally came off. So she had to pull over and conveniently this dude was like still behind her and, you know, was like, let me offer you a ride. Let me get you to a service place like a a garage or something. 
And according to her, she said that the man drove her and her daughter around and they drove for like two hours and they were definitely not going where they were supposed to go. She was saying they were like on these weird sketchy back roads near Tracy, California, and he was starting to like throw threats her way, saying he was going to kill her. He's going to throw the baby out of the car. And then, of course, because she spent so much time in the car with him, she has a description as well. And guess what? It's very similar. It is he is a Approximately 30 years old, maybe 5'9 or so, around 160 pounds. He had short hair and was wearing heavy rimmed glasses and, you guessed it, dark clothing. Eventually, she's able to escape. She jumps out of the car to get away. Once she's at, like, with the police at the police station and whatnot, she sees a like a wanted poster and she starts being like that's him that's the fucking dude you know that kind of thing and of course this blew up everywhere all over the newspapers and things like that and uh of course guess what happens else during this time we get some more letters oh yeah he sends quite a few more he likes to batch send apparently makes sense if you're in the mood you're in the mood Mm -hmm. so yeah he sends letters numbered 10 through 14 over the course of just a couple months this starts on april 20th and then they go through july 26th of 1970 if you guys want to read them they are in the sources page you guys can read all of the ciphers because they just keep getting more intense and all kinds of crazy stuff like more bombs and being like if you don't run this like something's gonna happen and then he does talk about on the 13th letter he does talk about how he tried to abduct kathleen johns which is interesting so it's more than likely definitely him because you know or he could have just been fucking with them because like i said it was in the newspapers and stuff so could go either way And then our last event to go over before we end this part is at Lake Tahoe. So in May of 1970, there was a woman named Donna, and she worked in San Francisco at the Letterman General Hospital. This was on the military base there, close to where the Zodiac had killed Paul, the cab driver. So Donna had moved to South Lake Tahoe, and she was working as a nurse for the Sahara Hotel and Casino. On September 6th, she just up and disappears after her last timestamp. It was a logbook type of thing at 1.50 a.m. So she had been working like a late shift kind of thing. They actually end up finding her car near her apartment just completely abandoned. Now, some people say that a unidentified man called Donna's employer and her landlord claiming that she left town due to a family emergency. Of course, they question, you know, Donna's family being like, was something going on? Because if there was, you know, they would track where she was traveling to or if someone came and got her. And they were like, no, nothing, nothing is happening. So they obviously suspected that she was, you know, kidnapped and killed, but her body was never found. They really don't have much more to go on besides that, but they did have a feeling that this could have possibly been like a side victim of the Zodiacs. It's going to come up next episode. Yes. But with that, we will end this episode here. Yes. I hope you guys have enjoyed this because it has been a lot for us. Mm-hmm. Like Tara said, that's going to wrap it up for us. So have a good day. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye. 
Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out, and we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.